can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. For those of you who, who know me well at all, you'll know that my preferred drink of choice is, of, is, is absolutely Coke Zero. I, you can see my can sitting under my, my, my chair right there right now. Um, when I cut back for, on Coke Zero, that means I'm going from eight to six, okay? Just so you know, a day. Now, I love Coke Zero because it's the closest locale thing that I can find to the greatest drink ever invented in the history of the universe, which is, of course, Coca-Cola. Now, now, trivia question, where was the first bottle of Coke bottled? If you say Atlanta, you're really wrong. Okay, now, that's the capital of Coke, but the first bottle of Coca-Cola was actually bottled in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Absolutely, that is true. God's country, and I know some of you are Googling that right now to see if it's true. I'm pretty sure it's true. Okay, that's what I've always been told. Now, I say Coke classic because for all you Coke lovers, you know April 23rd, 1985, the day that will go down in marketing infamy, the day that this, oh gosh, catastrophe was hoisted upon us, okay, in the form of, do you recognize it, New Coke, okay? And so it wasn't enough for Coca-Cola to be the king of the jungle, wasn't enough to be the best soft drink in the world, they had to go and tinker with the formula. And so they did, they had a big hype, big marketing campaign, but what they didn't anticipate was that people would actually hate it, okay? This is what happened. And so, so for 79 days, the country has never seen such an uproar over a soft drink, right? People are spending $1,000 or stocking up on a lifetime supply of Coke Classic. And, and in the middle of all this, Coca-Cola realizes they've made a catastrophic mistake. And by the way, you, they, they changed the name of New Coke to Coke 2. Please get New Coke off there. That's giving me the hibby-jibbies, Okay. <laughs> You cannot find this stuff anymore except in Canada or or somewhere, but it's no longer available. You see, people, customers rejected it. They would not entrust their wallets to it because although on the outside, from a distance, it looked the same, in reality, it wasn't. It wasn't real. It wasn't genuine. And this is actually kind of a spiritual parable for what we see happening in our text this morning. Now, as we talked last week about Jesus being in Jerusalem over the Passover and cleansing the temple, what we're going to find is that Jesus proceeded to do a number of signs, a number of miracles in the city of Jerusalem. And people all around Jesus are, are amazingly responding. They're, they're they're, they're gathering around him. They're, they're wanting to see what in the world is going on. But just like Coke customers with New Coke, we're going to find out that Jesus, interestingly enough, does not receive them. They are turning to him, but he is turning them away because he perceives that something is not right. He perceives that something is not real. Something is not genuine. And we want to find out what that is and how that relates to us. I'm going to invite us to stand. We do stand, have been standing through this series in the book of John to really kind of communicate that we stand under his word, that ultimately it's not about what I think or any of your elders or pastors or leaders think. It's, it's ultimately about what God thinks 
and we bring all human opinion, all perspective under his authority. So we stand for these three verses. Let's read together. John 2, 23. Now, when he, meaning Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, now listen to this, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that they were doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Lord, give us a clear picture of what faith is. Give us a clear picture through our time this morning of the kind of faith, the kind of belief that honors you, pleases you. So Lord, we pray for your help through the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. If you're, if you're fairly new, you're just rolling in, you need to know we've been in the book of John now for, for some weeks, a few months. And the very first Sunday that we started in John, we talked about why John the Apostle was writing. What was his purpose in, in pinning this particular gospel? And I want to remind us now of what we said then. In John 20, verses 30 through 31, the Apostle John makes it very clear why he is writing. Let's read it again. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, when it says these are written, what that's referring to are signs. So John is signaling to us that all of the miracles, all of the signs, like we looked at two weeks ago, the, Jesus turning the water into wine. We're going to look at later at how he heals the paralytic and Lazarus is raised from the dead. John says all of these have a singular purpose. And that singular purpose is that in seeing the signs that the disciples and, by extension, us, here in the, in the 21st century, 2,000 years later, that by seeing the signs that we will recognize who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God, that he has come, that he has power over sin and death. And, and, and by virtue of that, we would not remain neutral, but that we would believe in him, we would trust in him, and that by believing in him, we would have life. And what's interesting so far in this book of John is that that has seemingly begun to happen. Remember, Jesus two weeks ago has just turned water into wine, and it says, which is actually the first of the signs in this book, and it says that Jesus' disciples believed. God manifested his glory. They saw his glory. They, they, they gave him honor and worship and said, this is no mere man. This is, this is the Son of God. And so here in our text this morning, Jesus seems to be right on schedule. He is doing signs now, not just for the disciples, but for the crowds at large. These people who are coming from hither, there, and everywhere to find out what is going on. And it says in this text that they believed. And, 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 and for us, we're sitting here saying, well, this sounds pretty good so far. Jesus has revealed himself to his disciples. They believed. Now Jesus reveals himself to the crowds, and they believed. 
And then everyone's least favorite word, okay? Verse 24, what does it say? They believed, but, okay? No one likes that word. You don't like that word in a job interview when they say, Mr. Gilbert, you are imminently qualified for this job. In fact, you are so qualified, you're overqualified. Don't you love that line? Okay, we love you, but this job's not for you. Or you've been going out with someone, you've been dating someone, and they tell you, you are a really nice person. You're an awesome person. In fact, you're such a great person, you're, I, just, I don't deserve you. You've heard this, okay? You're, you're wonderful, and then what comes next? What do you anticipate? But, okay? It just, but means simply forget everything else I said. Listen to what I say now, right? They believed, but... And it says, Jesus turned them away. Now, is it just me, or is that just kind of like a little unsettling? Is that just a little bit disconcerting, not to mention confusing? Isn't this exactly what we would want to see happen? Isn't that exactly what we would want to see, what, what Jesus would want to see happen? Is this not what John pointed to in one twelve when he said, but to all who did receive him? who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What about that verse, Jesus? What about that one? It's almost like Jesus has changed the rules in the middle of the game, right? There was a young young man um, in New York City in the mid-60s who played basketball uh, named Lou Alcindor. And Lou Alcindor was a dominant player, he, 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 was, he was, people said, at, up to that point, the greatest high school basketball player to ever play. And he had built his game around being dominant at the rim. And, and of course, Lou Alcindor went on to UCLA, where he won three national championships. You probably know him as whom? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Okay, if, you're, if you knew that, you're over 40. Thank you very much. Okay. And, and, and he proceeded to do in college what he had done in high school. He was dominant. I mean, just absolutely dominant. And so the NCAA, in all their infinite wisdom, okay, um, the Bible says we are to love everyone except the NCAA, by the way. Anyway, so the NCAA, in all their infinite wisdom, passed a rule. And what was the rule? In college basketball, you may not have known this, no more what? Dunking. No more dunking. Um, People everywhere, they call this the Lou Alcindor rule. Here Here this man had built this amazingly dominant game, And here people wanted to change the rules in the middle of the game. They wanted to change the rules after, after, sort of midstream. Of course, how did it impact him? Not at all. He just did the sky hook thing, and it was the greatest shot in the history of basketball. But anyway, nonetheless, that's kind of what it feels like in this text. That, that, That somehow the playing field has changed. Now... What I, my, our goal this morning in these few minutes that we have together is, is to show that's actually not what's going on here. That, that, in fact, what John is doing for us this morning is not meant to, to merely unsettle us. It's actually one of the kindest and most loving things that Jesus could do for us. Jesus does not want us to be self-deceived. Jesus wants to sort of take a a microscope and say, 
when we talk about belief, and remember, believe is the, is the word that's used most frequently in this gospel. I think it's over, over 100 times, 200 times. It's used, it's, it's, the, it's the word you see most frequently in this gospel. And John is not wanting to sort of change the playing field on us. John is wanting to, to give us clarity about the nature of the playing conditions. See, see, new Coke from afar looks like Coke. But when you get up close and personal, you realize it's, it's not the real thing. It's counterfeit. And that's what John wants to do. In fact, this is going to introduce a theme that we're going to come back to over and over and over again, where John is, is comparing and contrasting true faith, counterfeit faith. True belief, false belief. See, there, there, there's this idea in the Gospel of John, it's just as you've received me, I receive you. And then there's what we see here. What you're trusting in really isn't me. And so I'm not entrusting myself to you. Folks, we don't want that kind of faith. And this is why the Gospel of John is so good. It is so loving because it wants us to walk out of here this morning with a with a crystal clear idea of what does it mean to love Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to say, I believe in him. He is my Lord and Savior. So that's where we're going. Two things we're going to pull out of this text, okay? The first one is this, the Jesus we can know. And the second is the faith he can accept. So who is the Jesus we can know? And what is the faith that he can accept? So the Jesus we can know, let's look back at the text. It says, these folks were coming to Jesus because Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. And we're going to talk under the second point about why, okay? But interesting, it says he knew all people, and it says he needed no one to bear witness for him. In other words, Jesus didn't need a character reference. Jesus did not need an independent authority or commission to tell him what was in the hearts of these people who were coming to him. He was able to discern for himself, all by himself, what was going on. Now, some of you, I know, have had the opportunity to, to make the epic Mecca journey down to, to Maple Street. How many have got a little visit under their belts here? And the rest of you hang your head in shame and figure out what, what are you going to do with your life? Um, awesome stuff. One of the cool things about going in there is actually seeing all the Four Oaks folks who are working there. Okay, it's very interesting. It seems like about half the staff, and I'll call them by their name, last names because it sounds like the military. Okay, so Breenan and Hayes and Thurber and Lassiter and Cunningham and Piper and many more, I'm sure. And we have to say, well, why? Why so many Four Oaks folks? And we would really be able to, to put our finger on that and say it's probably because they got great references, right? Okay, they got great references. We own the building, all right? It says Four Oaks Community Church. The manager knows many of you and your families. You are part of a church community. You're, you're, you're part of the, the system of support where people know each other. If, you're, if, if, if someone who works at Maple Street goes to Four Oaks, they, they know where to find you, right, on Sunday mornings. They, they, they're right here. Outstanding references. And the reason we need references is, is self-evident, right? 
we don't ultimately know what's in the heart of people. Even in marriage, right? You can be married to someone for 50 years and you know a lot more about them than when you started, probably a lot more that you wish you did not know, okay? But guess what, spouses? You'll never know your spouse fully. There's a thousand things that you don't know. What's going on in their heart at any given second or their mind or what they're thinking or what's happening. And guys, that's just the nature of things. That's why we have references. That's why we, have, we, we ask people to vouch for one another and for people that we're going to hire or what have you. Not Jesus, though. That's, that's, this is John's point. Not Jesus. Jesus doesn't need to have any authority testify to him about these folks because he knows exactly what's going on in the hearts of those who are coming to him. He knows their motivation. He knows what's happening inside. In fact, he knows everybody here. Not only does he know everybody here, he knows everything about everybody here. He knows every single thing about you and me. And he knows, in fact, more about you than you know about yourself. And, he, and the reason that he does is because he is God. He is omniscient. He knows all. Now, there are certain aspects of Jesus' divinity that he sets aside for a season while he takes on flesh and blood. Okay? There, there are certain, he's born as a baby. He gets sick. He cries. He's able to experience death. Those are all sorts of, there's there's certain ways he limits his power. But let me tell you one attribute of Jesus that he does not relinquish is that he knows all. He sees all. He, He peers into the heart and he knows what's there. Now, let, let me be honest. For some of us, we're hearing that, and that's a little, that's a little disconcerting, isn't it? <laughs> if it's not disconcerting, it, sh- it should be, right? It's, it's, like, it's like me finding out, it's like finding out that you're on Facebook Live and you didn't know it, okay, which is what happened in the first service, which was terrifying. Okay, found that out. My goal, I want, I want to spend a couple minutes on this. I, I want to actually show us how this is actually this fact that Jesus knows all. This can actually be, in fact, some of the most comforting knowledge of Jesus that we will ever have. That's what I want to show you. You know, one of the deepest human needs, let's be honest, is to be understood. You know, why, why is conflict in a marriage so painful oftentimes? Because we, because what? We don't feel like the other person understands us. If, if, they, if the other person only understood me, the waters would part, right? The seas would part. We would have perfect peace and harmony. Because I know I got, I got a letter from a, a, a former member, this is many, a couple decades ago, from someone here, not, not in this room, but used to go to church here. And this was someone that, that as families, we shared meals together. We, um, we, we, we went to each other's homes. We did things together. We knew each other's kids. And in this letter, this person made um, what I consider to be, they, they assumed the worst about me. They, 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 they sort of took a shot at my motives. And, and I kind of 
left reading that paper feeling kind of misunderstood, falsely accused. I was, I was maligned. And maybe you can relate. Maybe there's some conflict in your life this morning. Maybe there is some deep, dark thing going on in your life. Maybe you feel that if people really knew the real you and what was going on, they wouldn't want to have anything to do with you. But you need to understand something this morning. Jesus knows you perfectly, which means when you know him, you can always go to him. You see, Jesus loves his people uniquely. John 17, when we get to John 17 in the 22nd century at some point, when we get there in John 17, we're going to be reminded that Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world. Who's he praying for? The disciples. He's praying for you. Which means we now have cover. We have what what I would call testimonial immunity to tell the truth about ourselves, to admit the truths about ourselves, to be honest with him, and to know that he is going to love us just the same. What is it that we just sang a second ago? You know the depths of my heart, what? And you love me the same. You see, the gospel gives us the power to really admit what's going on in our hearts. You know, some of you know I come from a counseling background and seminary and, and graduate school. And, and, and I'm convinced of something. And, and there's a lot of ways that I could qualify the next statement. But if you qualify everything you say, you'll end up saying nothing, right? So I'm, I'm not going to qualify it. But listen, but listen I, I'm convinced of this. The source of many mental illnesses, and I say many, okay? Did I say all? Okay, please don't email me and say, you said all. I said many, okay? The source of many mental illnesses, the source of many psychological issues, the source of, of many of what we would kind of call mental health issues, I am firmly convinced, are really rooted in the effort to deny what we know to be true about ourselves, who we are, what we've done. And we've come, we, we, we have all sorts of creative ways to deal with it. We suppress it. We ignore it. We deny it. We reframe it. But still, still, the, the soul has to find room, doesn't it? And it leaks out with addictions and anxiety and depression and, and, and troubled soul. And this is not to, to, to cast shade on, on true mental illness. And all, you know me better than that. Okay, All those things are totally valid. But I'm convinced that this sometimes, oftentimes, more times probably than we want to readily admit, lies at the heart of what troubles us. I can't be truthful about who I really am. And, and the reason that I, I'm, I'm, hit, I'm banging this drum this morning is that that's me. That's me. I can be one of those kind of people. I can tend to be one who keeps things bottled up and partitioned, and I can sort of dissociate myself that these are these issues over here, but it doesn't really impact who I am over here. And so I'll be honest with you, church. Going through 
this text this week and remembering that Jesus knows all, it was, it was ner- unnerving. Um, it, was, it, was, it was hard. And I really had to come to the point of saying, Jesus, I can live in denial before others, and I can live in denial even about myself, but I know I can't live in denial before you. And so, God, let me just begin by telling you the truth about who I am. Telling you the things that you already know. And I'll be honest, it was actually the most, one of the most freeing things that I've done spiritually in a while. And so, and, and I encourage, I don't commend this practice to you, but I, I commend it to you. And I pull this out of my pocket because this isn't in the official sermon notes, lest they get online, okay? But I just, I just... Simply title at the top, What Jesus Knows About Me. I'm not going to read everything on this list, okay? But I'm going to tell you a few things I wrote. I said, I am materialistic. I covet and try to find ways to get others to give me things. I obsess about my sins and I rationalize them. I sometimes, excuse me, speak deceptively and not forthrightly out of the fear of man. I'm deathly afraid of being exposed. I can live sometimes by the philosophy of the ends justifying the means. I am spiritually lazy with myself, with my wife, and my kids. I can idolize food and sports, and alcohol. I'm not going to keep reading lest I'd be disqualified, okay? But, but, but nonetheless, you know, and here, here's, here's the amazing thing about this. That did not fix any of those problems right then. I was not somehow magically transformed and changed. Yet, some kind of burden was lifted as it always is, when the truth finally comes out and you realize this person loves me just, not just just as I am in terms of being content with where I am, but this person loves me right where I am. Jesus. This, This person, Jesus, is committed to me. He knows the depths of my heart, but he loves me the same. And so a prayer for us as a church family is that we would see, as we walk through this gospel, as we see the glory of Christ, as we are reminded of his omniscience, that that would not repel you. In fact, it would draw you. It would, it would it draw you to trust in him, to entrust yourself to him. Because that's why he came and died. If, if There would have been no reason for him to come and die if you were great just the way you are. You're a flawed human. I'm a flawed human. I'm a broken man. You're a broken person. And and John wants to remind us that Jesus knows all. And because of who he is and what he's done for us, we now have the courage through the gospel to tell the truth about ourselves. That's the Jesus you can know. Do you know that Jesus? Here is point two, the faith that he can accept. 
You may say, Pastor Paul, I, I, I want to know that Jesus. How do I know that Jesus? How am I sure that I know that Jesus? The faith he can accept. Let's go back to verse 24. As we said before, something was wrong about their faith. Something was not real. Something, something was missing about their belief. And the reason that we know this is that it tells us in verse 24 that Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Literally, they turned to him, but he turned them away. They were trusting him, but he was not trusting them. Now, you need to know, here's, here's a massive presupposition that I'm operating from this morning. You need to know. I'm operating from the, the foundation of knowledge that this book, this Bible is true. It is authoritative. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is inerrant. It is without error. It is, it, it is infallible. It is our ultimate authority. And as such, I do not believe it contradicts itself. Now, now, now the solution to some questions we have about the Bible are not necessarily immediately attained, but I believe they're ultimately all resolved perfectly in the knowledge of God. So when I read this passage and it says that G they believed and Jesus turned them away, I have to assume that John has not lost his mind, right? Okay, John kind of understands this. I have to assume by this that there's something about that belief, something about that faith that's not quite right. And I, I want to try to get us off on a running start as to what that might be. Now understand, this is the first sermon in a whole series where, in fact, this very issue is, is addressed. And so let, let me kind of get us a running start into what I think John is going to want us to get at through this study. I think John is stating in principle what he is going to show by example, personal example, in the next section that we get to, which is going to be on the man of Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee who wanted to know Jesus and who Jesus pointed out really didn't know him, at least yet. Now, let me read this. Set. Let's go back to, to verse 23 in chapter 2. And, and when you understand something, when we come to a division or a chapter division in the Bible, what should you do with that? And I'll, use, I'll, I'll quote John Piper in case you get mad, okay? Ignore it, okay? Ignore it, because those chapter divisions weren't there originally. John did not write his letter with chapter divisions. If there, any of you write letters with chapter divisions, I feel so sorry for you. Anyway, John didn't write with chapter divisions. And so when we get to those, we have to understand this was a giant narrative, so I want to read this together for you so that you kind of get the flow of what's going on here. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man, get it, of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. And we're like, well, this kind of sounds like the crowds, doesn't it? Jesus is doing signs. They want to come know him. They want to find out. They think he's from God. They think this is pretty cool. And what does Jesus tell them? He said, Jesus answered him, you, Nicodemus, do not receive our testimony. 
If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? See, what attracted Nicodemus, and I believe what attracted the crowds, was the miraculous, the signs, the supernatural. They loved what Jesus was doing because Jesus had finally come to give the Romans the what, what, right? (laughs) Finally, we have a man who can call down fire from heaven. Finally, we have a man who can do signs. That's a man that I want to go with. That's the man whose coattails I want to ride. And we're going to ride him all the way to the temple, all the way to glory, all the way to victory. We, we know this because there is another, even Jesus' own brothers, we're going to find out in John chapter 7. They said, Jesus, go up to Jerusalem and reveal yourself there and do these signs so that people will know who you are. And that sounds pretty good, right? And what does Jesus say? But not even his brothers believed in him. You see, what was drawing them to Jesus was not Jesus. It was not the giver. It was the gifts. It was the goodies. That when the miracles stopped... When the carnival ride ended, everybody was just going to go home. You see, and I think this is something that as 21st century religious folk in America, we can identify with. I would maintain more often than we, than we realize that for many folks, Christian faith is not primarily about Jesus. It's primarily about what Jesus can do for me. See, Christianity is about religion. It's about the social standing that I have in the community. And it's about my reputation. And it's about the connections that I can make business-wise when I'm here. Or it's about having my kids in a great environment that they can, raise, they can grow up to be moral. Or this is a place where I can learn cool skills for my marriage and my marriage can be peaceful. But when the bottom drops out, I'm gone. I'm looking for a different Savior. You know, at the root of affairs and midlife crises and people wasting their life on their hobbies and all those sorts of things, I believe are an ultimate indication of an issue with God. God, this is not what I signed up for. I trusted in you so that you could make my life better. Let me tell you what saving faith is. Saving faith means loving Jesus. And saving faith means loving Jesus even when he's all you have. Saving faith is saying, God, you have my heart. And just like Job, whether you give or whether you take away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now we're going to spend the next several weeks fleshing this out. And by the way, let me say this. I believe if you obey God and you obey his word, I think in many ways your life will be better, okay? The manufacturer's instructions, when you do things the way God has called us to, I think in many ways our lives will be better. But in many ways they will not be. And, and God does not, a lot of times our problem with this life, you've heard me say this before, is that we expect too much out of it. And, and at the end of the day, just like Paul, he's getting ready to have his head cut off and he says, everybody's abandoned me, except who stood by me. 
Jesus. That is biblical faith. So when it all drops away, is your heart captured by the glory of Jesus Christ? Let me make one note and we're going to be done to kind of help us flesh this out as we, as we leave here today. Isn't it interesting that in this text, it says that many believed in his name when they saw the signs. Signs are not bad. Signs are good. In fact, John makes a lot of signs. But he says the signs aren't the ends to themselves. The signs are to lead us to something. They're to lead us to Jesus. But look at verse, chapter 2, verse 11. We covered last two weeks ago. Listen to how this differs from the faith of the disciples. Listen to this. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and listen to this, and manifested his glory. See, that's not there in this text, in our text today. And his disciples believed in him. What that means is that Jesus revealed himself to them. They saw who he was in all of his glory. The disciples recognized that this is something unique. This is something life-giving. This is eternal life in itself. Remember what Peter says later. Jesus says, disciples, are you guys going to leave me too? Because I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. Are you going to desert me too? And what does Peter say? Lord, where would we go? In you are the words of eternal life. That, my friends, is the faith that Jesus accepts. There's nothing complicated about it. Okay? There, there, there's no magical hoops to jump through. There's no amount of good works, good deeds, the checklist. There's, there's none of that. There's simply this. Jesus, I trust in you and you alone. No matter what else happens to me, you, I belong to you. You belong to me. I will follow you even when all around gives way. My prayer for us, for Oaks, is that this summer season, just like the disciples, that we would behold and that we would see his glory. And in seeing his glory, we would be irresistibly drawn and attracted and trusting in him. Let's pray.